Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, and I hope that you're staying healthy. We have a jam-packed show for you today. A little bit later on, Rob Bryden will be here. He's one half of the comedy duo that brings us The Trip movies. If you remember 10 years ago, there was The Trip with Steve Coogan and Rob Bryden. They went to uh, Northern England and toured around some restaurants. Then there was The Trip to Spain, The Trip to Italy. Now they've got a new one out called The Trip to Greece. It's hilarious, it's poignant, it's great, and it's on VOD right now. He's later in the show. Then we'll meet a guy called Paul Perrier. He's a photographer who's been roaming the streets taking pictures of people wearing masks. I was interested to hear about this project because I think we can learn a great deal about what people are thinking during the pandemic through art and artists, and Paul certainly is one of those. First up, though, we meet Mark Critch. Now, you know him from This Hour Has 22 Minutes. We're here to talk about his book, Son of a Critch. It's a memoir about growing up in Newfoundland. It's hilarious. We spoke via Zoom, and I started this interview the way I start all of these isolation studio interviews. I asked him where he was. I am in St. John's, Newfoundland, uh, land of my birth, right downtown, on uh, just two streets up from Water Street, yeah. And you talk a great deal about how growing up in St. John's uh, inspired you because it was isolated. You're really isolated now. I assume you're not really leaving the house that often, uh, that you're in self-isolation. What's it like now? Well, that's the thing about, you know, Newfoundlanders are known for music and for comedy. And I think that comes from having to entertain yourself in these small communities that were all uh, created just for the fishery, you know, very small population. So somebody had to do something to, to keep each other uh, happy. You played an instrument or you, if you were useless like me, you tried to be funny. So uh, now all these skills that we've for generations uh, enhanced are useless because you're by yourself. So you had, you had to, it's very hard for a Newfoundlander to sit in a room by himself. But, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, it's great because, you know, it's this, I find what's interesting about this is we're not with people anymore, but I feel connected in different ways. I mean, I've been on the telephone a lot more. I, it's always been texting and you reach out to find a voice. You do things like we're doing now, you know, you, and you really focus on these conversations you're having and uh, it's helped a lot of, you know, older people in our lives kind of catch up with, with some of the technology. So it's, I think the creativity now is finding ways to, to stay connected. I've had conversations with people, regular conversations with people that I haven't spoken to in ages, or normally I might speak to them once or twice a year if they don't live uh, near me, uh, you know, talk at Christmas, maybe on their birthdays. Now we're doing regular weekly Zoom phone calls, and I'm actually really enjoying that part of this whole situation. Yeah, me too. And that's what I find. And I find that because we are maybe starved for attention a little bit, but also because the people you choose to reach out to are people who are important to you. And I think you realize who you're going to cling to and who you want to talk to. So I find these, these conversations are really focused. And, uh, and also I, I find myself like sometimes in a group, you know, we all have these group Zoom chats going on with different folks, uh, you know, just getting a much stronger connection to someone. And then at the end of it, I think we'll kind of all feel like we went through this, like we earned a little badge together. And, and future generations be like, oh, come on, this, oh, you weren't in COVID. You didn't, you knew nothing about what it was like. Yeah. <laughs> so what exactly are you doing to pass the time when you're not on Zoom, when you're not doing this? You're working on a book, I know that, but that can't be uh, 24 hours of your day. 
No, it isn't. I, uh, been doing a lot of walking, a lot of hiking. I was, I got married in August. Uh, and so we're supposed to be on our honeymoon right now. We're supposed to be in France and, uh, it's easy to be in love in Paris. It's harder <laughs> to be in love in like week 10 of a quarantine. So it's great that it's testing the relationship. You know, you get married and then you go immediately to like year 30 of marriage, you know, right. you're just, can you chew quieter? Uh, but it's, it's good because it's great. You know, we're realizing like, okay, great. You, I'm, you're the right person for me to marry. You know, she's working at home too. She's a lawyer. So that's, I'm learning too that that's a real job mm. as opposed to me. It's like, oh, I might have to come up with a tweet later. And she's like, I'm, I'm doing a case. I have to, oh, well, well, want some help? You know, it's like, I realize like, oh, I'm going to go in the other room now. So that's good. Uh, but yeah, I've been doing that, you know, like everybody else, I've been trying to cook more. But one thing that's a bit different for me is I have a few friends who are uh, chefs and sommeliers and all this stuff. And, and we've known each other for years. And uh, we always come together for benefits and stuff. And, and I get to be around their world a little bit. But they've been having this weekly Zoom chat. And what it is, it's like a wine tasting Zoom chat. Now, I am not a classy fellow like yourself. You know, you're a very cultured, refined man. You know of the arts. You know of these things. So I was just kind of like a red, white, I don't know, I'm guessing. But what we do is everybody puts in a couple of bottles of wine. Right. Somebody does a pickup. They pour it in a mason jar. So we come on Zoom and have a, a, a wine tasting. And then the sommelier guy is like, oh, well, what region do you think it's from? And, what? and people are learning a lot, but also getting very drunk <laughs> in a classy, refined way. So that's been, uh, that's been my big thing is I've, I've learned a little about wine. You're listening to my interview with This Hour Has 22 Minutes star Mark Critch. So... Uh the first thing that you'll do when you can leave the house and the mason jars of wine behind, what <laughs> that will be? Wow. Um, I think uh, I, I would imagine first thing would do, we would do is get a bunch of people in a pub here. Um, and my pub of choice here in, in St. John's is a place called the Republic. And uh, the bartender there and the owners are all good friends. And we have a group of regulars down there. We go and solve all the world's problems. So I think a bunch of people probably celebrate there. Uh, and then I would like to have a dinner party. I would just like to have all these people, family and friends over and just pack the house and, you know, eat and touch and hug uh, as much as possible, I think would be great. Yeah, I hope it happens right away. You know, I hope that people aren't uh, uh, feeling strange about it. I hope that you don't have a dinner party and you look around and everyone's wearing a mask. Well, I think there is going to be a bit of, of that, too. You'll get, be able to see, I think, right away what people actually think of you. Because it'll be like, you know, you go to hug somebody. They'll be like, no, no, well, COVID. It's like, you, just, you just hug that guy. Oh, well, yeah, I know him differently. So I think you'll find out exactly where you stand with people. Now, I love uh, in your book, uh, Son of a Critch, a Childish Newfoundland Memoir, uh, how do you speak about growing up in Newfoundland? Uh, I grew up on the East Coast as well, not as far east as you, but I grew up in Nova Scotia. Wow. And when you tell people that you're from Nova Scotia, uh, they assume that you grew up in a, a lighthouse, uh, yeah. on the ocean, all that kind of thing. And, and I assume the same is true for Newfoundland. But for you, it really wasn't exactly that at all it wasn't what we think of can you describe a little bit of what it was like for you my dad worked on the radio and he was a news broadcaster at a radio station this radio station was right on the outskirts of the city a little bit outside called vocm and we lived in a little white bungalow next to the station and the transmitter 
because, you know, in those days there had to be somebody. So dad thought, okay, well, this is great. I'm going to stay in the station house. And dad was like a lighthouse keeper for a radio station. And this was on the Trans Canada Highway. There's nothing except for a couple of farms, a car dealership, and then these lanes of, of traffic of transport trucks going by. So it's kind of like growing up at the first level of the video game Frogger. No other kids around. My dad was an old guy. Dad was in his, you know, 50s when he had me, late 50s. And, uh, and so all, I was old, I was, all the other kids had these younger parents and, you know, dad, and everybody around me in my family was much older, living my grandmother too. So it was just a lot of older folks and, uh, and no kids. And this, you know, your imagination kind of had to take over. And, and that was it for me. Yeah. And yeah, everybody expects there to be, you know, whales and tell me the story about, but when I first went to school in kindergarten, I, that was the first time I'd really spent time around other kids. Yeah. Well, it is, is interesting uh, to think about uh, the way you grew up. So your dad's a journalist and well-known. Uh, oh, very well-known, yeah. He's a very well-known guy. Uh, your mother you describe as a storyteller. And so it seems to me that you're kind of the, the mix of the two of them. You are the, the natural conclusion of the two yeah. of them coming together. Dad worked at a radio station. Mom was a radio station. She gossiped and she spoke in a real machine gun blast of gossip every time she'd meet somebody. Like, oh, hi, you're Marjorie Chase. Oh, my God, I heard all about what happened. Now your husband, he got the cancer. Like, now you smoked, didn't you? And your son spoke. Oh, my God, it was, it's like a hat trick, isn't it? Everybody in the house smoked, but you didn't kill him. You loved him. My God, I'm sorry for your loss. And she would just dig into the deepest parts of people. But very funny and lovely. And uh, yeah, and we, uh, Dad, you know, we didn't have any of that kind of Newfoundland experience. And as part of the book, I started looking into our family history, and Dad's father died when he was five of TB. Mm -hmm. And he had been a fisherman early on, but then he left and he, his friend drowned, and so he went off to New York building skyscrapers. A lot of Newfoundlanders were iron workers in like the 20s. And before that, his father was a fisherman who drowned. And before that, his father was a whaler who drowned. So it's kind of like drown, 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 TB. Let's all just be kind of useless people. And that'll be a journalist, you know, comment on things that happen. Let's not do anything. I'll be a comedian. I'll make fun of things that happen. So that was the end of us doing things. So I guess we became far removed from all of the, uh, the romanticism of, of the sea. Well, and you talk about having older parents and how uh, your love of politics and probably your opinionated nature about that came from overhearing conversations that they would have. Because I'm sure, given your mother's love of gossip and your father's job, that there was probably a lot of that. Oh, it's incredible, you know, because um, dad was a journalist. Dad covered Confederation with Canada for a newspaper here called The Daily News. I know. Uh, and so that was, so he was, you know, uh, he, he knew everyone and knew everything about everyone. And mom had heard everything about these people. And so they had a chance and all, that was their sports with politics, you know. There was no real talk of hockey in our house or baseball, anything like that. It was all sports, you know, parties were teams. And in Newfoundland, you have these big, they're like wrestlers, a lot of politicians. You have Joey Smallwood, John Crosby. And there weren't debates, they're just these comic insult matches, you know. And, and, you know, the province is forever booming and busting. We have oil with Danny Williams. We have everything. Now we have nothing again. So it's, it's, it's very dramatic. So even as a kid, you'd get into it. And, uh, and these stories stay with you, you know, forever. We continue talking to Mark Critch. And I asked him, where does his sense of humor come from? Humor here has always been kind of a defense mechanism. You mm -hmm. know, you'd have big storms, big disasters, things like that. And people kind of keep having, there is no 
can I go on or shall I go on? You had to because in the, in the early days, that survival was was part of it. You know, you it, it was very people would drown and die, and then the next day you had to go out and fish. Right. And uh, I think and so people developed kind of a dark sense of humor, and um, there there wasn't much of a class system here. There were merchants and people who had everything, and then there was everybody else who had nothing. So the people in power are always kind of, you know, never trusted, kind of made fun of, uh, snickered at, and told in songs, like a lot of the songs are making fun of people or dealing with the hard, hard times in a, in a humorous nature. So that's kind of inbred in you to, uh, bred into you to, to, to take things with a bit of a grain of salt, shrug them off, and, and have a laugh at them. So, poly, I mean, when we grew up, I went to Catholic school. We'd all, you know, I do impressions of the nuns and the, and the Christian brothers and stuff. And now you do impressions of, you know, Doug Ford. Yeah. It's sort of the same thing you're doing in high school, just with different people. And I imagine, too, that growing up, uh, as you described, where exactly where you grew up and trick-or-treating at the car dealership and that kind of thing yeah. gave you sort of a, a, a sense that uh, this was different. This doesn't feel exactly the same as all, you know, the kids that I'm going to be meeting when I go to school. Oh boy, in school though, yeah, kids would be talking about stuff and talk about things their parents did or talk about going, you know, uh, playing after school. I went on this, I get on the school bus at, you know, I didn't get home till you know, almost five o'clock, you know, at, after school. And, uh, and you'd see this world go by of these cul-de-sacs and these kids playing and like, oh my God, that's what it's like. And desperately trying to fit in. I mean, my dad was a big uh, John McCormick, Bing Crosby, and Al Jolson fan. You know, like you know, you know, pre-Sinatra, he thought of as a young guy, you know. <laughs> so kids, we'd be talking about music. And people like, what kind of music do you like? Oh, I like Michael Jackson. I like ACDC. And I'm like, oh, are you guys uh, more of a Caruso guy? Or uh, are you guys into Eddie Cantor? And, you know, like, what are you talking about, you know? So I had no idea. Uh, so that was, that was weird. It was very hard, hard to fit in. And I kind of, I think, and then you get bullied right away because they, they sense there's something weird about this guy in corduroys, uh, over there in hush puppies, uh, with a bunch of 78s under his arm. So they, uh, they realize, you know, okay, he's the weakest link. And that using that humor then to try and distract them a bit, you know, and they'd be like, you know, Oh, you're kind of funny. Uh, do that nun's voice again, you know, and, and then they, almost like a mascot, then you become, you know? So I, I really figure out this humor as, as a way to, to fit in, find a place and survive. You're listening to my interview with Mark Critch from This Hour Has 22 Minutes. Writing the book and, and recounting all of this, um, did it bring up happy memories for you? Did it, was it cathartic at all? What, what was it like going back and, and putting all this on, on paper? Well, you know, I realized like so many of these memories were, very, were quite vivid for me growing up, you know? And I realized how important the family was. And at the time, you don't, I mean, it really helped me appreciate things. And then doing a bit of research about you know, the family tree that we, you know, we never ever, dad never talked about in the past. Mm -hmm. Because I asked him, you know, we should do the family tree. And he said, oh no, why would you want to do that? You spend all this money trying to find out where you came from and twice as much trying to cover it up again. And uh, I thought that's a good. That's you know, there's truth to that. But I think the way he didn't want to look back was there was a lot of sadness, and he had you know tried to create this other other life better for us, and I, I, a lot of appreciation I think uh, for for what they had gone through in the, as quirky and weird as it was, 
and and then you you look at other kids growing up you're like oh i wish our house was like that i wish my life was like that why aren't we like that and then you realize like well all we had was quite special yeah and mm -hmm. and you know I, I definitely wouldn't trade it now uh because everything i am now and any success that i have had is you know because of that off that mixed stew of experiences that i had now Let's have a, a look at a couple of things here, and I'm going to ask you which one was more nerve-wracking. Okay. Uh, Photobombing Justin Trudeau, yeah. interviewing great big C's Alan Doyle as Alan Doyle, while impersonating yeah. Alan Doyle, uh, uh, crashing a White House briefing, or offering Pamela Anderson a million dollars to stop acting. Uh, <laughs> it would have to go down to... Uh, the Justin Trudeau uh, photobomb thing, I really enjoyed that because I was bringing my kids up to meet the prime minister. He was in Signal Hill and they hadn't met him. And, and, I, and I said, oh, you guys should come by and meet the prime minister. That's going to be a thing. You know, you look back at this. And we get up there and the kids said, dad, do me a favor. Please don't embarrass me. Please. I said, what do you mean embarrass you? What if I, you're going to do something stupid. You're going to do some kind of stunt. I'm like, this, I'm not working. I'm just here to introduce you to somebody. Oh, please don't do anything embarrassing. And I thought, okay. And they meet the prime minister. He's quite nice. And then I thought of that, what they said with the, and I said, okay, hang on. And Justin had just been seen, you know, with his shirt off in the background of all these pictures. Right. So I took my shirt off and did the thing. And, and then my son looks up and he's like, I thought you weren't going to do anything embarrassing. I said, it wasn't until you reminded me that I could. So that was a more of a dad moment. Yeah. Uh, but the Pamela Anderson one was a bit nerve wracking because she had offered a million dollars for all of the sealers in Canada to give up sealing, which I thought was disingenuous mm. because it sounds like a lot, but it worked out to be something like $64 or something yeah. or $600 per sealer. Yeah. And anyway, so I offered, I offered the check and I had to, like there's all these protesters and counter protesters. And that wasn't for the show either. I just kind of just wanted to do that in the moment. So I weighed through and I hand her a check. And then the guy from uh, PETA was there and he demanded the, po the police arrest me or get kicked me out of there. Because, uh, because he said, you're here, to, uh, we're paying for police officers to be here. This person's disrupting this. Get rid of this man. And I look at the cop, and he takes off his glove. He says, Miss Gritch, just want to shake your hand? I was like, aha, not in LA anymore, Pamela. These are my people. So that was, a, at the time, was nerve-wracking. A little bit later on, I'll introduce you to Rob Bryden. He's one half of the English duo who make The Trip films. Now, if you've seen The Trip, or the trip to Italy, or the trip to Spain, you'll be excited to see the new one. It's called The Trip to Greece. Funny stuff, poignant stuff, we'll tell you all about it in the next segment. First up though, I'll introduce you to Paul Perrier, a photographer who's doing something really interesting. He's got an Instagram account called the Toronto Portrait, and he's taking pictures of people on the streets wearing masks and it's a really interesting look at how everyone is dealing with the pandemic there's a sense of playfulness to some of these there's a sense of sorrow to some of these there is fashion there are medical masks it's a really interesting look at how people are holding up in this very unusual time let's get to know paul perrier what are you seeing on the streets well, it's changed. So I started, I think I shot the first portrait on March 19th. And uh, that, that was just around when the lockdown started, I think, within a couple of days. And it was really, I mean, it was like being on a movie scene almost. Like the streets were quiet. I was riding the subways, they're empty. Um, people were 
I, I, I've noticed in the portraits myself that it, it started off a lot more clinical, the masks, right? Like people were using those uh, clinical masks and now it's become a bit over about a month and a half, it's become a bit more of a fashion thing. Right. Which is interesting. So, and more people are wearing masks now than from when I started. Right. Um, and social distancing, yeah, it's like, what I have to do to get these, I have to approach people to ask them if I can photograph them. Because I've asked people to pose for these. I'm not just shooting random people. And, and what's the response? I mean, how do you do it? Because you have to stand, I guess, six feet away from someone and kind of like, hey, you, you know, give them a, give them a heads up first. So what's the response? So my process is I go out and, you know, I'll go to an area and uh, if I see somebody with a mask, I don't ask everybody. A, um, I, I look at people's eyes. I can usually tell if right. the people that I approach are going to do it or not just by seeing their eyes. Right. If they make eye contact with me, a lot of people have their heads down in mm -hmm. their phones. They have their uh, earphones in. So, you know, uh, a lot of people don't pose. But um, yeah, I just, I stop people and I say, excuse me, I'm six feet away from them. I have my phone in my hand that has some sample pictures of it. And I say, I, I just say, I'm shooting this series of portraits. Would you like to participate? And I'll give you a picture. And what do you see coming out of all this? Because the picture that you took of me, I think was number 543, if I remember. So you've taken hundreds of these things. And, and what is it? Like, what, what's the, is it just a portrait of a time now? Or, or how do you see this project kind of playing itself out? Well, the, so the photographs are, that I post on Instagram, and the site's called the Toronto Portrait Project. Mm -hmm. And it's, I started it last year, last summer, and it, I shot a series of portraits using a wall, a fake ba uh, wall background that I took and duct taped up to different <laughs> walls and asked people to pose for photographs. I like going out on the street and it's a way to connect to people. Yeah. And it's, it's a, as a photographer, it's, a, it's almost like fishing. Right. My, dad, my dad used to brook trout fish right. and I see a lot of similarities in it that you, you go to a spot, there's a bunch of fish going by, you put out your, you know, you cast out and you'll reel in a few. <laughs> but a lot go a lot go by also but that's just it's part of it it's and you don't you know photography is um a very you, an isolated art form too right like it's you and the camera you don't need other people you don't even have to go photograph people i like photographing people but i also during this time have also been photographing the city empty like i shot a photograph on shooting near um, Dundas Square, shooting north on Young Street, and there's no cars in it, and there's no people. Wow. And it was, I shot it on, I think it was Easter Sunday afternoon. Wow, that's like one of those pictures you see of Toronto from 1968, you know? <laughs> <laughs> when there's just nobody, there's just nobody on the streets on a Sunday. Wow. You're listening to my interview with photographer Paul Perrier. It's yeah, no, it's, fa it's fascinating. And, and, you know, the other thing I've noticed is the light. Like, 
the pollution is less. It's beautiful out. You don't have as much smog and uh, there's a whole bunch of combinations to make beautiful photographs. And uh, they're on Instagram and it's called the Toronto Portrait Project on Instagram. You can find it on Twitter as well and that sort of thing, I'm sure. And um, what are people saying? What are kind of the, the comments uh, that you're getting from the photographs? Uh, fascinating. But, you know, the people who do participate really love it because they get, these are, they get a really interesting souvenir from a pretty dark time i think it, it makes people happy like I, i'm just i'm doing it because i'm interested in but i also like giving people something during this time to make them feel good yeah and i've had some really interesting you know some people it's just i'll be with them i'll stop them i'll i usually take maybe three or four photographs it's very quick but some people, we hang around and have these pretty intense conversations. And, uh, but, it, yeah, it's fascinating. And a whole bunch of different responses. And, and a lot of people just scare when I approach them. Yeah. A lot of people think I'm trying to sell them something. Right, right. So there's a whole bunch. And a lot, like I said before, there's also people have their heads in their phones and... Uh, they're, they don't want to stop or talk or they're scared. There's a lot of fright out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I have noticed, certainly, uh, since everyone's been wearing masks, and, and as you say, that was a process. That was a gradual process. Uh, but, you know, the other day in the grocery store, I gave leeway to a young woman who was coming towards me. I you know, gave her the six feet to, to walk past. And I smiled, and I think she smiled back, but it's hard to tell because, you know, her face was covered up to here. And so it does make that kind of social interaction uh, a little bit more awkward because it's hard to tell exactly what the person is saying with their face. Yeah, although, the, and the interesting part about that too is the eyes tell a lot, right? Yeah. Like you, 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 if you look at the photographs, my portraits in that whole series, and I think I shot um, since March, I started, I shot the first one on March 19th. I think I've shot 135 portraits. Right. But you, you can tell the people that are scared and the people who are, you can see the people that are happier enjoying it too because the eyes are the you know the window to the soul that was paul perrier check out his mask series of photos at the toronto portrait on instagram let me set up my interview with the british comedian and star of a trip to greece Rob Bryden. A restaurateur by two British comedians resulted in one of the most charming films of 2010. The trip was an improvised journey, not just through the North England culinary scene, but through the psyches of Steve Coogan and my guest today, Rob Bryden, as they commented on life, usually while doing a spot on Michael Caine impression. Ten years and several trips later, they follow the roadmap laid out in Homer's The Odyssey in the trip to Greece. I love Greg. Uh, what? I love Greg. Greg who? Greg oh, Greg or Ian Chant, yeah. Very good. Well, I don't mind whether Greg or Ian Chant. I mean, they're both good. <laughs> <laughs> it would be easy to think that these movies are easy, breezy travelogues with pretty scenery and sumptuous-looking food, but they are much more than that. 
The trip to Greece, which comes to VOD this week, brings with it all the banter and impressions and eye-catching sights that you expect from these movies, but beneath the veneer of laughs lies a story about mortality and legacy. But don't let me make it sound too serious. These two are naturals, an intellectual version of the two Ronnies who riff on everything from Aristotle's poetics to Dustin Hoffman and who gloriously and loudly sing 70s BG tunes while visiting the wonders of the ancient world. It's my pleasure to welcome Rob Bryden from his home in England via Zoom. We start where these In Isolation Studios interviews always start with the guest telling us where they are right now. I live in uh, Twickenham, which is outside London. I just passed Richmond as you're heading west. This is my office at the top of, um, of uh, uh, my house. And this is where we've been for um, a lockdown. And well, you have five kids. Uh, I think, there's, are, are there just two at home? The 11-year-old and the 8-year-old, yeah. is that right? How's yeah. that been for them in lockdown? And then I guess the natural conclusion, how, for you? Well, how's it been for them? I think they would like to see their friends. Mm -hmm. um, we're lucky, it's, it's, a, it's a big house and we've got a lovely big garden. So, I mean, have knows what it's like uh, keep thinking of people in flats and apartments, you know, with kids. Oh, and, and yet, so it's still challenging because the homeschooling in particular, mm -hmm. uh, for, for not so much for the, he's 12, he was 12 the other day, not so much for the 12 year old, but for our um, eight year old, who's nearly nine. I, I, I was talking to a teacher friend and he thinks they've got to get to 10 or 11 before they can work sort of, of on their own, you right. know. So, so George, yeah, needs, needs a lot of supervision. And, and um, the longer this has gone on, the more I have, you know, had to start doing things, like whether it's interviews for the trip or right. you know, I'm doing a few, writing a few little things that have zoomings. Whereas to start with, it was just like being on holiday. Right. And you get the, well, I've got to start doing something, if only for my own sanity. So it's not without its challenges, but... I, I wouldn't dream of moaning. We're, we're very fortunate and, uh, you know, I, I like being at home, so it suits me. <laughs> I asked Rob Bryden how he and Steve Coogan arrived on the, quote, characters they play in the trip series. How much is fiction and how do they figure out how much to reveal about their real lives? At the very beginning of this, we did say to Michael, well, I'm not, my, I'm not referencing my real life mm -hmm. and and also within i think within the trip i have children of whatever age they are they were quite young at the beginning and the inference is that this is my one and only marriage well in reality of course this is my second marriage and i have five children older grown-up children their 20s so i wanted i wanted that distance and and so and so did steve but then Beyond that, of course, we, we reference um, our own work. I mean, particularly Steve with the references to Partridge and Philomena and uh, Stan and Ollie and stuff. Um, we don't reference mine as much. We, we, Steve will make derogatory comments about panel shows and things. So you just, you just select what works for the conflict, you know. Um, I don't think we've ever mentioned in the trip uh, Gavin and Stacey, which is a show over here that's 
huge that, that, that I'm in. It sort of doesn't fit with that sort of narrative, you know. So we just sort of cherry pick. And I, I suppose in a way we have our cake and eat it, you know. Rob Bryden told a story about how in the trip to Italy, after he had an affair with a deckhand, his wife was hearing from people the next day saying, oh my God, I'm so sorry this happened. I asked him, did that make you more aware of how you wanted yourself portrayed in these films? First of all, that word, fair. Now, affair to me suggests several encounters. Okay, all right. As, as I was saying to my wife, this, this, this was a moment of madness. Um, the, the, um, yeah, that was true. It was very true that, that a teacher, when Claire was the boy, and it had been on the BBC the night before, Lily said to this must be a very difficult time for you, which kind of, is mind-boggling. An interesting observation on that whole thing is that I I might be a little more stiff to how we're portrayed because Steve rarely appears in public out of character, whereas over here I've had the Rob Brydon show. I host Would I Lie to You as myself, and uh, so they there and, and I go on tour as myself, and so so there is a. Oh, God, I don't want to use the word brand, but but there is a, you know, there is a me. You're listening to my interview with Rob Bryden, star of The Trip to Greece, which is on VOD right now. This is the fourth time we've been on one of these little jaunts. We're uh, retracing the, the steps of Odysseus. Greeks were camped here 10 years. I can do a week tops with a pillow. I won't camp without a pillow. Watching this movie for me was sort of bittersweet because none of us will be traveling anytime soon or going to restaurants. I asked Rob Bryden if he had had those moments while watching TV or movies. Even in your own, if you're looking at photos in your phone and you see a group of you together posing for a photo, that seems alien. I, I agree with your, with your observation. It's remarkable how quickly we've accepted this. Mm -hmm. I find that incredible. Everybody is, I, I went for a walk with one of my older girls, so both, both of them, because we're only allowed one at a time at the moment here, in the big park near us today. And uh, there were quite people, but they were all keeping their distance. And it, it is interesting how it just it says a lot about humans, that we can adapt and we, we, we can change, just accept it. And sometimes I find myself go, hang on a minute, there is a global pandemic, it's kind of bogeyman thing that's always been there. Uh, a little like, you know, nuclear war or something. You think, well, it probably won't happen. You know, that is, probably won't happen. But here it is. I couldn't spend any time with Rob Bryden without asking about Al Pacino and this amazing story that I heard about his chance to meet one of his heroes. I'll let him tell the story. Yeah, well, well, what it was, Jessica Chastain, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, who, who is lovely. Um, I mean, wow, she's an actress. Isn't she? Um, anyway, she was going to meet him because she's done a lot of that Salome and all that stuff. Right. Um, and he was in London and she was going to be having drinks or dinner with him. She said, why don't you come? Wow. You know, <laughs> now it just so happened that on that evening, I think it was a Saturday or a Friday, there was something I was doing, like a school event or something, which I could have got out of, but I sort of thought, well, I have this funny theory, you know, with, with these people, 
because I've had a lot of heroes in my life. You know, I've had a lot of people, and not everybody does. You, you, you'll meet actors and creative people who don't. But I, I'm still a fan of, of people. You know, at 55, I still get excited by certain people. Um, and I just thought, oh, I don't know. Do I want to meet him? Yes, I do, I suppose. But my thing is, I already have a great relation with Al Pacino. It's just he's not aware of it, you know. But, right. <laughs> but I do. So I, so I didn't. And I, I imagine that maybe once, once Al, and it's a long way off, but once Al has shuffled off, you know, this mortal coil, I'll probably regret it. I'll probably think, well, I could have met him. But that was my, that was my reasoning. I was telling my older son, I was asking my older son if he'd seen, ever seen Carlito's Way and Donnie Brasco, which are two, you know, wonderful films. Um, I liked him in Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When he goes towards the end, when he's, I think he's taking Madonna into that, that place, that place with all the machinery where, they, where it goes. And he goes, wait, oh, oh, I'm having a thought. I'm having a thought. Here, oh. It's coming. It's coming. It's gone. <laughs> oh, that was that was terrific, you know. And th that was a project, wasn't it? With Sondheim doing the music and Pacino oh. doing the baddie. I mean, wow. Hello. I look better as I get older. Yeah. Lots of women. Well, say I'm that. a man is going to say it as well. I'm saying it. You look better older. Oh, thank you. You were unpalatable as a young man. We're not got much time left. You're going to miss me. Can be exhausting. Good God, you should meet you. What would you say you're most proud of? Uh, my seven BAFTAs. Mm. Hey, for me, it'd be my children. Yeah, well, because I haven't got any BAFTAs. Though you have got children, which is interesting. That was my interview with A Trip to Greece star Rob Bryden. My thanks to him. My thanks to Mark Critch. Check out his book, Son of a Critch, wherever you buy fine books. And also have a look at Paul Perrier's Mask series of photographs on Instagram. And you'll find that at The Toronto Portrait. They're really cool. And if you poke around enough, you'll see one of me with my cool David Bowie mask on. My biggest thanks, though, as every week, goes to you for listening. I appreciate your time. I'm Richard Krause. We'll talk again next week.